Once again, good morning, church. Thanks for being here. If I haven't met you, my name is Jackson Flieger. I am the youth pastor here, and I'm so excited to be able to open God's word with you and just to look at his word and see what the Holy Spirit inspired uh, and what's good for us uh, today. We are in a sermon series called Me, We, Us, Relationships 101, and so we have just been unpacking what God's design is for, for marriage for the family, and I get the wonderful uh, opportunity to open the word with you guys. I think the last time I got to speak on marriage, it was the topic of divorce. And so that was a fun topic uh, a couple months ago. And then this, uh, this week, I get to look at the topic of the, <laughs> the biblical roles of, of wives and husbands. So uh, excited to just see what the Lord has to say and what his word has to say and how his word shapes our marriages and our families for the better and for our uh, good. But you could turn to Ephesians chapter five, we'll be there, uh, but I'm going, going to uh, real quick look at 2 Timothy, so you could kinda keep your thumb in your Bible and then flip over to, uh, to 2 Timothy if you could do that, if not, that's fine. Uh, but a key component to a, a, a biblical worldview, to a Christian worldview, is the understanding that God's word is inspired, that this Bible that we hold is inspired by God. And so therefore, everything in this Bible is, is good for us. It's God's perfect word that he's given to us for our good, for our benefits. And that's a, that's a key understanding, a key principle to a biblical worldview. Because if you don't have that, uh, I don't think you really have Christianity. Because so much of what we know about Christianity, everything that we know about Christianity, the foundations of the faith, everything we know about Jesus is rooted in this word. And so we can look at our culture and we can see so many different ways that our culture is rejecting this, right? Just this past week, we've seen this crazy stuff happening in the news, uh, all these different outrages. But sadly, we can look inside many churches and we can see many Christians who also are rejecting this word for their lives. Who We don't have to look at the culture because we know what the culture is going to do, but we look inside and we look at our own hearts and we look at our own lives and we see different ways that we are rejecting God's good design for our life and for our, our families, for our marriages, for our career plans, all these different things. And so I want to read to you 2 Timothy chapter 3. I think I might actually have it on, uh, on the screen. We'll, we'll see. Um, I don't think so. Okay. 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verses 16 through 17 says this. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul's writing to Timothy there, and Timothy's young in the ministry, and Paul is encouraging him. He's, he's charging him to continue strong in the ministry, and he gives him this beautiful two verses in scripture. That says that scripture is good for training in righteousness. Anything that we would need in this life, teaching, correction, training, that we might be complete for every good work. And so when we approach this scripture, this passage that we're going to be understanding, it's important that we have that in the back of our minds. That even though sometimes we might disagree with God's plan for our life, even though there might be times that we read scripture and say, that's maybe not exactly how I would have written it if it was my decision, we still understand that I might disagree or it might make me feel uncomfortable, but I still know that it's good for me. I still know that it's God's holy, perfect word that has been written and given to me by the Holy Spirit so that I might know Christ better and live like him more in all the areas of my life. So I hope that we would approach today with that in mind, that this is God's good, holy word that is written to you for your benefits so that you might know Christ more. And so with that, let's pray, and then we're going to jump in to Ephesians chapter 5 today. 
Uh, Lord, we just love you so much. We're so thankful for your word that you are a God of clarity, not confusion. You are a God who has made your will plain to us. Uh, Though some of us might be wondering what the next step is in life, we can know generally that what your will for us is, that what you would have us do day to day, how you would have us live. And when we look at the topic of marriage, we know how you have designed marriage, what you would have us to do because of how we look at your word and what we see in your word and what you've revealed to us in your word. And so I pray that in these next few moments that you would just help me to step out of the way, that I would just open your word, that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts. And that's all that we would walk away saying is that God spoke to me through his word today. Now pray all of this in your name, amen. So the first thing we're gonna look, before we jump into the passage on marriage, we're gonna look at verses 15 through 21 because I think they are helpful for us. The first thing I'm gonna point out on the screen is uh, there are these new life communities and I'll, I'll, I'll get to that in just a second. But read with me verses 15 through 21. Paul says this to the church at Ephesus. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ." Ephesians is one of my favorite books in the Bible because I think it makes it so clear for us if you're reading this book. It helps you understand what the gospel is and how the gospel transforms your life. If you are a believer, the gospel should radically transform your life every single day. The gospel is not just a truth that you believe at one singular moment in your life. Back at a VBS or a summer camp, yes, I believe the gospel that day, but the gospel is also a truth that transforms your your life every single day in all areas of your life. Ephesians shows us that we are no longer dead in our sins, but we have been made alive in Christ. We've been welcomed into a relationship with Christ, and so now Ephesians through chapter 4 through 6 shows us what this new life in Jesus looks like. And so Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, and he's writing to this group, and there was, there was one author who, who wrote, and he referred to this group of churches, or this group, this, these Christians, as new life communities. He was saying these are men and women who had just been saved, they've been transformed by the gospel of Jesus, so now Paul is writing to them to show them how this new life that they have is supposed to change their everyday life. They were new life communities, and I thought that was a helpful way of thinking about it. And I think that's important context for us as we approach our passage on marriage. These first few verses highlight some important things, and Paul touches on a few things, just a few that I wanna point out. There's obviously more, but first he tells these believers in verse 15 to look then how you walk. Look carefully then how you walk. Paul is encouraging these believers to examine their lives and to make sure that the way they are living aligns with the gospel of Jesus Christ. To make sure the way that they're conducting their life, conducting their families, their marriages, all areas of their life falls under that umbrella of the gospel. That they are living as transformed people in a a, a different way, uh, living in a new way because of what Christ has done for them. He then tells them not to be drunk, but to be filled with the Spirit. These new Christians are supposed to walk by the Spirit, be filled by the Spirit, and empowered by the Spirit, right? All of us, our relationships in this life, any relationship, friendship, coworker, marriage, all of those, the Holy Spirit needs to be, one pastor said, the fountain of that relationship. 
If you were to conduct healthy relationships in your life, it is only through being spirit-filled, through being empowered by the Holy Spirit. And there was one pastor who was writing, and I, I shared this with somebody the other week. He was saying that if the Holy Spirit, if his presence and his power was taken away for some reason, God wouldn't do this, uh, but if his presence and power was taken away from churches and Christians, many churches and Christians wouldn't even realize that the Holy Spirit wasn't there anymore. Because many of us are not living spirit-filled lives. Many of us, like Galatians said, are not walking by the Spirit. So God could pull his Holy Spirit away and we would have no clue that he did that. It's very sad, but Paul is calling us to be filled with the Spirit. He then says at the end, uh, in verse 21, he says that we are to be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so in this passage, we're about to read some scripture where uh, Paul calls wives to submit to their husbands. But I think it's important to understand verse 21 that in a general sense, all Christians are called to submit to each other. So Paul's going to talk about what it looks like in the marriage, but in a general sense, all of us as brothers and sisters submit to each other, defer to each other, uh, look out for other people. So uh, maybe that helps us understand this passage, and I think it does. And so these new life communities are to be patterned by new actions because these believers have been saved from their sins. And so Paul's going to show us how this new life takes place in our marriage relationships. So we're going to see that there is the, the biblical role of the wife in verses uh, 22 through 24. So I'm going to read that uh, for you. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to, in everything to their husbands. And just real quickly, uh, I know and I'm well aware of that I am not a marriage expert, <laughs> and I do not uh, have as much marriage experience as you guys, so please do not hear me speaking as an expert, but just as somebody who's unpacking the scriptures. And I know that verse 22 packs a little bit of a sting in our modern culture. Right, the idea of submitting to another person, especially in today's day and age, uh, makes people uncomfortable, right? We're a land of freedom, of opportunity, of bodily autonomy, all these different things that are celebrated. So the idea of submitting to another person, as Paul says, he says, wives, submit to your husbands, can carry a little bit of a, a sting or a level of, man, that makes me feel a little uncomfortable in 2023. But hopefully verse 21 helps us understand that there is that level in which we all submit to each other in Christ, but in the marriage relationship, Paul calls wives to submit to their husbands. In the context of marriage, submission carries the idea of following the leadership of the husband, okay? To submit means to follow the leadership of the husband, and I think it's important for us to understand that to submit to somebody is different than a call to obey somebody. If you were to look in your Bible and you look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, the call to children is children obey your parents. So a child doesn't have an option in their obedience, right? Uh, a child could feel like taking out the trash every night is an unjust rule that their parents shouldn't do, but as a child, in that relationship with their parents, they have to obey their parents. That's what the Lord calls them to do. But the wife is not here called to obey the husband, but to submit to the husband. To submit to somebody is different than to just obey them. To submit to somebody is a voluntary action. It's a choice. It's a willing action of the wife. The wife is choosing to submit to her husband by her own free will. 
She is not being forced into submission, coerced into submission. She is doing it out of the actions of her free will. She is deciding to follow the leadership of her husband. This is not a perfect analogy, but when I submit to the government, when I pay my taxes or follow the laws of the land, I'm choosing to do that. Now, the the illustration falls apart when we take into account that the government can punish me for not paying my taxes, but in that sense, I'm choosing to follow the government. In the same sense, in the marriage relationship, the wife is choosing to follow her husband. She's not being forced to, but she, by her own free will and power, is following her husband. And now some people in today's culture might ask, why in the world would a wife do such a thing like that? Like that was written so long ago, why would I do that now? I see three things from this passage. They're not on the screen, but here in the scripture, one, the wife is called by God. Right? This is, again, one of those things where God is calling the wife to do this. And, and so it's not my ideas, my desires, but it's the Lord is calling the wife to submit. And number two, she does this to glorify the Lord. In verse 22, it says, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. This glorifies Christ when we live out his roles and his desires for us. So ultimately, the, the desire is to glorify Christ in all areas of our life. And this is a passage where we're shown how to glorify the Lord in our marriages. And number three, we see because of the love of her husband, which we'll see later on. A wife uh, joyfully submits because of the love of her husband. That's a key, key puzzle piece to this whole, this whole story. And so in verse 23, as we continue to move along before we talk about the roles of the husband, Paul refers to the husband as the head of the household. He says he's the head of the wife, even if Christ is the head of the church, his body. So what this means is that God has placed the husband as the head of the marriage. And as the head, he carries a level of leadership. As Christ is the head of the church, he directs the church and he guides the church. All of us as members of the body submit to Christ because he is the head of the body. And so he's comparing the husband to Christ. It's not a perfect analogy in that the husband is everything like Christ, but the husband carries a sense of authority as he is mimicking the role that Christ has in the body of Christ. So if God has intended the husband to be the leader of the family, then the wife, as the church submits to Christ, out of her free will, submits to her husband's leadership. She submits knowing that God is calling her to do so and that God has given her husband that sense of authority or that position of authority. And for me, it would seem like if the wife tries to take that leadership or to take that position of authority, she's doing something that God has not designed for her to do. And now we know, though, there are situations where there are single mothers who have to step into that role, or there are maybe situations where you just kind of have a deadbeat dad who doesn't do anything, doesn't love his kids, doesn't love his wife, and the wife then has to take on those responsibilities. And so we do know that the Lord is faithful in those situations, but we're speaking in this marriage situation. Look with me at verse uh, 23. He says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and is himself its savior. We need to be careful here. The Lord is not calling husbands the saviors of their wives. This is kind of where the, the comparison ends, and Paul is just breaking out into this Christological statement about the deity of Christ. We know true and well that God, that Jesus is the savior of the church. That Christ died for the church and has welcomed us into his family. He in no way is saying, and I've heard people make this argument, that the husband is the savior of the wife. That is not biblical. And that's not what Paul is trying to say here. That is uh, putting way too much power, authority, and pressure on the husband to say that he is the savior of his wife. 
But then you get, uh, again, you look at verse 24, and there's another challenging statement that we have to understand. He says, now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything to their husbands. And so you hear that phrase, in everything, and you say, okay, help me understand that. But again, submit is different than obey. So in no way is Paul structuring the marriage relationship like a, a soldier and a drill sergeant where the wife is just standing there ready for her commands and she's submitting in every, or obeying in everything. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying that you're submitting in everything and it carries the idea of following the leadership of your husband in all areas of the life. Not necessarily having to do every single thing that the husband says, but saying, I'm going to follow you in all areas of our life. Our marriage is going to be united in all, all, all ways. You say, what do you mean? Well, imagine in a marriage situation or relationship, if the husband and wife, the wife was like, hey, we're on the same page on everything. I've got you. I'm following you, except for how we raise our children. In, in that case, you do your thing. I do my thing. We're going to go our separate ways. Well, you could imagine how that might cause some disruption in the marriage. It might uh, cause some disharmony in the family unit. But I want to make, before we move on to the roles of the husband, some, some caveats. Because I do think this passage has been misused and abused by men who were seeking to uh, rule over their wives. And I think even uh, just in church life, we've seen that lately, women and children have been the object of abuse far too often. And I think there's some healthy things that we need to point out uh, or some things that we need to point out that just this passage does not say. Uh, first is this, a wife this is something the passage does say. A wife only submits to her own husband. Look at verse 22. A wife only submits to her own husband. Women and, and wives are not required to submit to all men everywhere. The, the Paul is not painting this picture where men are up here and women are down here. And so women, anytime a man is in the room, they just have to kind of keep their head down or, or say what and do whatever he does. That's not biblical. That's not what this passage is saying. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands. A, a, a woman is not required to submit to a random man any more than that man is required to submit to the woman. With verse 21 in mind, in that in all of us in Christ are submitting to each other out of reverence for Christ. Does that make sense? And, and I think we've seen that used, and there's been that attitude sometimes in churches where, where women are less than men. But we know that according to Genesis 1, is that men and women are created in the image of God, therefore they are equal. Though they serve different roles and they have different functions, they are equal in the eyes of God, okay? Number two, since it's a willing submission, it's not the job of the husband to make his wife submit. There is no call in this passage for the husband to bring his wife into submission. There's no call for the husband to discipline his wife or to uh, be cruel to her because she's not obeying. Again, that's not in this scripture. The husband is not called to make his wife submit. That's not in scripture. And I believe that toes the line of abuse and even crosses into abuse. And that would be a dangerous place to be in. I would think in our marriages, we would want to try to avoid the line that crosses into abuse. Not get as close as we can, but as far as we can. Husbands are not called to discipline their wives or to make a, a checklist for them to see if they're performing. That's not the call here. Number three, a wife does not follow her husband's leadership into sin. We obey God rather than men. And so if a husband is leading his wife into actions that are dangerous, reckless, or sinful, the wife does not follow. And she doesn't let her kids follow into that. 
Number four, this does not mean that the wife passively follows either. I think we've seen this sometimes played out in church. The wife has a voice in the marriage that is important. She, her voice matters, her voice should be heard, and it should be weighed heavily in all decisions. If I was to make a decision in our marriage and I went to my wife and I explained to it and she was to say, I think that's stupid, or I don't agree with that, that would be a huge red flag to me and I would not wanna move forward until we talked about that and worked that out. Though the husband carries a position of leadership, he's not just going through the marriage, making all the decisions however he pleases. The woman should be heard, the wife should be heard. Her voice matters as an image bearer and as a key part of that marriage relationship. She's not to be ignored or pushed to the side. That's unbiblical. Number five, a wife is allowed to call out her husband's sin. Again, I think we've seen that played out in other churches and other areas. Your wife has the ability to correct you. She has the ability to call your sin out. And if you think that's wrong or not biblical, you're, you're wrong. You're just not reading the Bible. I, I thank the Lord that my wife has called my sin out and helped sanctify me in our marriage. But if, if your marriage is structured to where your wife has to be quiet and can't confront you on your sin, God help you. That sounds terrible. Sounds terrible. And number six, the husband has no right to be domineering in his leadership or abusive. And we'll see that, but I just wanna mention it multiple times. Just because the husband is in a place of leadership does not mean he gets to uh, be hard or abusive in his leadership. Just like we would say when we look at the government, just because the, the president or whoever it is is in a position of leadership over me, that does not give them a right to abuse their power. Just because a, a police officer carries a sense of authority in my life, that does not give him the right to abuse his authority and treat me any way he wants to. It's the same way in a marriage. Abuse and harshness and cruelty, cruelty has no place in a marriage relationship. And I think, sadly, this passage has been used at times to uh, hurt women and to lead to unhealthy marriages where the husband is up here and the wife is way, way down here. And that's wrong and that's unbiblical. And I think our point number three, the biblical role of the husband is gonna help us understand that more. Both roles have to be uh, looked at and, and looked at together to understand God's picture. So let's read, let's read. The husband has a high calling, uh, a very high calling. Verse 25 says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body." Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And I'll just continue on. It's not on the screen, but verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she re respects her husband. And just follow along in your Bibles. Uh, the husband is given a command as well. The wife has a command, but the husband is given instructions in this passage as well. And the husband is told to love his wife. This is in a verb here, the word love. It's a verb. And so loving your wife is an action performed by the husband. And it's an action that is continually done. If you were to look in the Greek, the word is in the imperative mood. And I only bring up the Greek to say this. The imperative mood means that this is not a suggestion, but a command. 
This is something that needs to be done. The Spirit is calling all husbands to do this. Not to say, oh, I do it when I feel like it, or, and that's a problem for a lot of us. But it's a call to do this. It's a command. And Clinton Arnold says that in that day and age that Paul was writing, there were such things called household codes. And so these household codes were, were given to the families in that culture, and it basically gave instructions for how the marriage and the family was supposed to operate. Roles of the husband, roles of the wife, what the children were supposed to do, what the servants were supposed to do. And so in the families, they had these codes. And Arnold points out that in those household codes of the time, husbands were never commanded to love their wives. In all the different codes, all the different instructions they were given in that time, husbands were never told once to love their wives. And so we see in these new life communities that we're talking about, Apostle Paul, he is uh, just completely changing everything. He's saying this new life in Christ demands that husbands love their wives. And the kind of love that the husband is supposed to show is explained, right? Because I love LeBron James, but I also love my wife. And that love, those two different loves are different. <laughs> I would hope so. Please, God, let them be different, right? That would be weird. And, but what the Apostle Paul does to show us what this love that the husband has should look like, he compares that love to Christ's love for the church. He says to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so Jesus' love for the church was selfless and sacrificial. His love was not fueled by selfish desire or gain. We know that Jesus was not a self-serving savior, but he died on a cross. He sacrificially gave his life, gave his body on the cross so that the church might be saved. Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So husbands are to love their lives in a way, in the same way that Christ loves the church, motivated not by selfish desires, but a desire to serve and to give his life for her. Even in the headship that the husband possesses, he does so in a way where he is self-sacrificing and serving, like self-sacrifice and service are driving him in his love. He's spirit-filled and watching how he walks, like the, the previous verses talked about. This love is counterculture to what was common at Paul's time and common in our time today. Because if you're a husband or you're just a person, you're hearing this and you're thinking, that's pretty difficult. Because I don't know about you, but I think all husbands share this same struggle, is that we're selfish. All of us, by our human nature, are selfish. We're lovers of self, first and foremost. I think I've heard it said that any problem in a marriage or in a relationship could find its way back to the root of selfishness, living for ourselves other than other people. But here, God is calling husbands to love their wives more than they love themselves, which is difficult. As I sit here right now, and as I've been writing this and praying over this and reading this, I've been convicted, because I can think about times where I clearly love myself more than others and more than my wife. And that's the difficulty in marriage, and that's why we have to be spirit-filled. And we'll talk more about that in a second. But I think we could also say, uh, any deviation from God's design in marriage that we see today, uh, it roots itself in selfishness, roots itself in, in thinking we know better, whether it's cohabitation, whether it's gay marriage, whether it's whatever you want to say. 
any deviation from God's design in marriage, any deviation from his word, I think has its roots in selfishness. Abuse, most certainly, most certainly. And so we say we have to check our hearts and say, where do we see the selfishness? Tony Morita, a, a pastor in our area, says this, Christ-like love is a Golgotha love. Christ's back was scorched, his hands and feet were nailed to the cross, he says. A spear was thrust into his side, a crown of thorns was placed on his head, all because he loved the church. Christ's sacrificial love is a foot-washing love. And I have this quote on the screen for you. He says this, his headship is our model. He came to serve, though he was the head. We see in Christ authority is coupled with unparalleled humility and love. And I love what he says so much there because yes, the husband is the head of the household. Yes, he does carry authority. However, his love, I love how he says it, is coupled with humility and love. If you are the head of your household but you have no love, you have no humility, you have no grace, then I would imagine things are unhealthy. As I was reflecting on this passage, I just jotted down these two sentences. I said this, in my mind I was thinking this, submission is a terrible thing when you're submitting to a self-absorbed, harsh, sinful person. That's a terrible thing. But submission is a beautiful thing when you're submitting to somebody who denies themselves so that they might serve and love you better. Earlier when we were talking about uh, the, the role of the wife, I said earlier, man, why in the world would a, would a woman want to submit to a man, right? Why would you do that in today's day and age? And I said number three was a wife submits to her husband because of his love for her. And we know that in the relationship with the church, we as the church gladly submit to Christ because we know how much he loves us. We look to the cross and we see the sacrifice that we made and we would say, man, Christ, I will follow you anywhere. Whatever you want me to do, I will do. And so we should consider in our marriages, man, if our wives don't want to follow our leadership, we shouldn't look to our wives and say, man, what is wrong with her? Man, what kind of sin does she have going on in her life? We should look to the way that we're living and loving. Say, maybe she doesn't want to follow me because I'm not loving how Christ has called me to love. We see verses 26 and 27. We just don't have the time necessarily to, to look at it in depth, but we see another Christological statement about Christ, not necessarily about the husband, but about Jesus, where he says that Jesus sanctifies the church. He's cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Paul's referring to the initial sanctification of the body when we became believers. And when he talks about the washing of water with the word, he's not talking about baptism, but about the initial cleansing that takes place when we get saved through the preaching of the gospel. One pastor would say the word of the gospel is the means by which we receive spiritual cleansing. Christ cleanses his bride spiritually and he does so through the word of the gospel. And the beautiful thing that Paul points out here, and this is for all of us, whether you're married or not, is that one day we will be reunited with Christ in heaven. And it says that we will be reunited without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that the bride of Christ might be holy and without blemish. Another writer says that Christ's ultimate goal is to be fully reunited with his purified church on the day he returns. We look forward to heaven, not as the Mormons do for an eternal marriage, but we look forward not to spend eternity with our husband or our wife, but to spend eternity with Christ. 
without stain, without a blemish, without sin affecting our relationship. We look forward to the day where we are reunited with Christ, and Christ looks forward to that too. And even now, he is sanctifying us and purifying us through his word and through his love for us. And, and real quickly, we'll see in verses 28 through 31, Paul continues to talk to husbands. He talks about Christ for a moment, and then comes back to the husbands in verse 28. You can look in your Bibles and read along with me. He says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as they love their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Verse 31, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. You don't really... Um, Maybe you have to teach a kid to, to shower and to bathe and good hygiene and things like that, but you, you don't typically have to teach somebody how to care for themselves. Like we said, we're selfish people. We kind of naturally just look out for ourselves, uh, care for ourselves, love ourselves. And so Paul says in, in the same way that you care for yourself as a husband, as you look out for yourself, as you provide for yourself, in the same way you do that, you are to love your wife. When Jesus is asked what the greatest commandments are, he says, first, love the Lord God, and then second, he says, to love your neighbor as yourself. And really what we see in this passage is just the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself, or to rewrite that to say, to love your wife as yourself. That's the call of us. As, as men, as husbands, is whatever love we have for ourselves, we show to our husbands. We love our wives in the same way. We love our wives sacrificially. And I'll just say for, for, for teenagers or for those who are, 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 are dating and, and, and considering prospects, it would be important to consider as you're looking at this person, as you're looking at this guy, does he love others selflessly? Or is he selfish in his love? Because if, he if he's not comfortable sacrificing and laying down his life for other people, not always getting what he wants, I would imagine that's somebody that you would just move on from, on to the next one. Gonna keep looking. Because this is the call of a husband. And some would say that the husband is called to the highest standard of love. There's no greater love than what Christ did on the cross. There's no greater love than what Christ has modeled to the church. And men are called to model that. We're called to the highest standard of love. And I would just say again, abuse is incompatible with that kind of love. Abuse is incompatible with what scripture says. And as Christ calls out to different people throughout scripture, he says, woe to you. I would feel very comfortable saying, woe to you who abuses your wife, who abuses your kids. I would question your salvation. I would say that the Lord stands over you in judgment and that you need to stand in fear every single day. And to anybody in this room that might be facing abuse, women, children, we would say as a church, we are here for you. I cannot begin to imagine what you walk through. And we would love to help you in any way that we can to be a safe place for you because your home is not. And to all husbands, we have to, as verse 15 says, to watch how we walk carefully. That we never find ourselves drifting into that. 
But again, if you abuse your family, you abuse anybody in your life. Shame on you. The Lord stands over you in judgment. And if he doesn't deal with you in this life, he will deal with you. Abuse is a serious thing that the church for far too long has been silent on. And husbands here are called, as we said, to the highest standard of love. And so I want to close with this, just two thoughts. Paul says that the, uh, uh, in verse 32, he says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And, and so what we see in this passage is that marriage is a picture of the gospel. Is that a healthy, good marriage is able to preach the gospel to the world around us. And, and so we always talk about how our marriages are reflections of the gospel. But I would just say for all of us, if you're married, you know that our Marriages need the gospel every single day. Because every single day, husbands fail. And every single day, wives fail. We all sin. We all make mistakes. And so our marriage doesn't only picture the gospel, but it needs to model the gospel every day through repentance and forgiveness. And that's a hard thing, because all of us in our marriages can think of ways that we've been um, unloving to our wife, unloving to a husband. And, and we could think right now, we could probably write down different things. And so our marriages have to be quick to model the gospel, forgiveness and repentance, reconciliation, because that's what we see in the gospel, is that though we were sinners, we cried out to God, we cried out to Christ, and he forgave us, and we were reconciled back into a relationship with him. And so our marriages should model that. We don't always. We're never going to be perfect. And, and so the last thing we should do with this passage is, is for, for husbands to be like, man, wife, you're, you're, you're not doing this for me. You're not, you're not da-da-da-da-da. Or for wives to be like, man, husband, you're not loving me. You're the... Yes, we can, we can use this passage to, to talk about the health of our marriage, but... We shouldn't use it as a club to, to beat our spouse. But this is a standard we're called to live up to. And so we can use it to, to, to look at our hearts, to look at our lives. And that's why I say I'm no marriage expert. Still working on my own selfishness and sin. But we're all called to do that and to see the gospel in our marriages. And, and the next thing I would just point you to is the the fruit of the Spirit. I just want to read Galatians 5, 22 and 23 to you. It says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I've heard people do some, some funny things with the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, they, they talk about the fruit of the Spirit like it's a spiritual gift. Like, oh man, I, I, I'm not called to, to be kind. God, God didn't gift me with the gift of kindness. I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just not a kind person. I'm just not a patient person. I, I just, I'm not a faithful person. I don't know who would say that out loud. Um, but we treat it like, oh yeah, I, I, I'm gifted in joy. I'm very joyful, but I'm just not super kind. So, so don't come up to me at the store and expect me to be kind to you. But the fruit of the Spirit are not gifts given to us. They're not, uh, you know, you have this gift, he has this gift. But they're characteristics that all Christians are to grow in. As we sanctify ourselves, if we come be more like Christ, 
these different things grow in us. We become more loving, more joyful, more peaceable and patient and kind and good and faithful and gentle. And we grow in self-control. I'm trying to grow and eat a little less candy these days. <laughs> but these are things that we all are to continue to grow in. And so you might look at your life right now, whether you're married, not married, whether you're a teenager or what, and say, which one of these do you need to grow into? As you read through that list, which ones, and we're all lacking in all of them, but which ones stick out to you and say, ah, I need more patience. I need more gentleness. I need more joy. Because as you look back to the first couple verses that we looked at, as Paul calls us to be spirit-filled, I think if any of us are to move into any relationship in a healthy way, it'll come through us being spirit-filled and through living out the fruit of the Spirit. And so if your life is void of these things, if your life does not have these things, if you go on that road for a long time, at some point you might ask yourself, am I even a Christian? Because I'm not growing in the things that I'm called to grow in. Because as you walk with the Lord more, as the Holy Spirit resides in you day after day, the thought or the idea would be that you would begin to grow in these things slowly. But if you don't, if your fruit is the, the other things that Paul mentions in the passage, he talks about impurity and idolatry, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, divisions, envy, drunkenness, all these different things. If you're growing in things like that, then the Spirit is not working in your life. And so I would just challenge us all to say, man, where can I grow? What fruit do I need more of? And, and how might the gospel change any relationship that I'm in? You see verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. He says it's a, it's a mystery. Because in the marriage relationship, we have two people who were living their own lives, who decided we're going to get married, we're going to come together, and these two people through however it happens, become one flesh. That's why you can't hate your own self as a husband now because if you hate your wife or you don't love your wife, then you don't love yourself because the two have become one. Marriage is a, it's a beautiful thing. It's under attack right now in our culture, most definitely. Through, through all different sides, we can point to one crowd and say, well, we'll look at them, but even within the church, we have a lot of we have a lot of things that we're allowing that the church in America is just kind of ignoring or overlooking. And so as marriage is under attack, it would be smart for all of us to commit to honoring marriage. So whether you're, you're dating, that you would honor the Lord in that relationship. I tell my teenagers if you're like, 12, probably shouldn't date, you're not actually dating. But you should honor the Lord in those relationships. If, if you're, you're single and you don't care to get married, pray for the marriages around you. If you have a spouse that has went on to be with the Lord 
you can, can model for other marriages what it looks like to honor the Lord. And for those of us who are married, we look at these different passages and we ask, Lord, how can I live this out? Let's pray.